0: The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. So this just came to me as I was listening to that song, Precious Jesus, and not part of what I planned to say, but I want to say it anyway. Um, This is my wife's wedding ring. Right? I'm not going to tell you how many carats it is or what the cut is or what, how clean, you know, all that kind of the four C's. But I remember having this in my drawer, like before I even proposed to it, right? And I'm looking at it every day. I'm paying it off. It's so precious, you know? And then I'm like, honey, will you marry me? So, here, here, here's the thing, though. Um... I needed to find out how precious Jesus was before I could even love my wife. His death on the cross for my sin. That's it. All right, so that's tough. Um, March 2nd of this past year, 2018. There was a private funeral, about 2,000 people show up at this private funeral to honor uh, the life of a man that uh, reached millions of people. His name was Billy Graham, this iconic evangelist who preached all over the globe um, to, you know, um, so that's March 2nd, 2018. He died at age 99, and he was one of only four private citizens to also be honored, at the U.S. Capitol Rotunda F- One out of four private citizens So this, it's quite an honor So this, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is funerals It's a way to commemorate somebody's life And we remember In fact, for your dearest loved ones That, that have gone to be with Jesus Don't you remember their deaths? On, maybe on an annual basis Maybe even more than that Depending on how, how close their death was Maybe even this year, last year Ten years ago. But today we're here to commemorate and remember another death. And that death did something for us. In fact, at this time, and I don't know if you've ever wondered, why do we have two services? You know, one, one at 1 o'clock, one at 70, other def- different services. But at this moment in history, 2,000 years ago, in fact, the Bible says from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, Jesus hangs on a cross. And He's dying for us. The Bible says in in the four gospel accounts that lots of stuff happened. Like there was a giant earthquake and as you saw in the screen there, the the, the darkness covered the land. The sun stopped shining for those hours. Rocks split. Earthquake tombs of holy people started to rise from the dead. That's what the Bible says that happened. And so maybe some people that were thinking all this going on, is this the end of the world? You know, could you imagine that, that stuff happening? I mean, is it the end of the world? And it was just the opposite. The Bible says it's the salvation of the world. And so if it's the salvation of the world, then isn't it a great time to commemorate what's happening right now? That Jesus would die at that moment in history for the sins of the entire world. That's how God loved us so much that He would allow His one and only Son to be sacrificed for us. Now, we don't celebrate the pain and the agony that He endured. We don't celebrate the sin that caused Him, that caused God to send His Son to be on the cross for us because sin is our shame, isn't it? But what we do celebrate is the love of God the Father for us, each and every one of you, That's how much God loves you. As Jesus' hands are this, like this, to say, this is how much I love you. If there weren't nails, he'd still be on the cross. And so I want you to realize something, that this story of Good Friday, it was actually told 700 years before it even happened. 700 years, there was a prophecy of Isaiah, and I want you to open up your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, okay? So just keep your Bibles open there, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, it's on page 1,145. If you brought your own Bible, Isaiah 52 and 53, and I want us to connect this great prophecy of Scripture with what happened on Good Friday and connect it to the gospel accounts, this portion of scripture, if you see the highlight, of, I think it's above uh, chapter 53. It's the suffering what? The suffering, I didn't hear you. That was 52, 53. No, it's not the suffering servant? Wow, it's in my Bible, it says the suffering servant. Oh, it's in between. Okay, the suffer- I have it on the screen here, the suffering servant. You've heard that before, right? The suffering servant. Now, Jesus' words in, in the gospel, Mark chapter 10, he says, I did not come to be served, right? But to what? To serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This all plays out in Isaiah 53, and I think it's just remarkable. It's just remarkable by God's direction and by his holy inspiration that Isaiah writes with such clarity so many prophecies that come to be. And it's almost like in this generation, if, if you were reading this, you know, it's almost like it's, 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 it, we're looking at it as like events that happened already. But when Isaiah wrote it, it's 700 years to come. And to write with such clarity like that, it's incredibly incredible. But from God's perspective, because what is time to God? You know, when Isaiah is writing these words, it's like it already happened in God's mind. And so we read these. And, and one of my habits I've had maybe for the last, since I got here to faith 11 years ago, is I've read the, the passion accounts from all the Gospels during Holy Week so that I would re- remember And I don't think, and it surprises, I don't know why it surprises me, but every time there's something new that I understand from reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the Passion accounts. And I hope that I'll never stop learning once I read those back and forth. But what I'd like to do today is is take Isaiah, the end of 52 and 53, connect it with all the Gospel accounts. So you're going to hear and see a lot of Scriptures from the New Testament, but you also have in your hands... The book of Isaiah so that we might read it together okay beginning in chapter 52 with verse 13 it says these words see my servant will act wisely and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted I want you to key in on that phrase lifted up it's a messianic phrase it's a phrase that signals that Jesus is going to be exalted he's going to receive honor and, and Jesus knows this. He understands this. From the, in the Gospel of John, you can look on the screen, it says that the Son of Man must be what? Lifted up. That everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And then He says in, in uh, John chapter 12, but when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. You see, Jesus uses the same Messianic words as Isaiah did. I will be lifted up and I want you to imagine this, that this gigantic cross behind me, which is beautiful, and it's a great reminder, but this cross was actually a lifting up, an exaltation of Jesus. This is where he's, he's actually receiving glory and honor. Now, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? I mean, how, how can that be, that in this moment, the salvation of the world is one of the greatest moments outside of the resurrection that we can think about, that this is actually happening? See, we're not celebrating or or Jesus isn't getting glory and honor and exaltation when he's actually living a life. When he comes down to take on human flesh, when he leads a sinless life, that's not exaltation. That's actually the opposite. It's humiliation. But in this moment with the cross on this Good Friday and the resurrection, this is his lifting up. This is his exaltation. I want you to think about this for a moment. That the cross is both this. It's both suffering... And healing. Think about that. It's both suffering and healing. It's both rejection, but it's also triumph. And it's both humiliation, but it's also glory. The Son of Man is lifted up. How true that is that Isaiah writes this. I want you to look at verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 19, it has eight little words that explain this verse from Isaiah. How it happened? Eight little words. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. That's it. We don't hear anymore, we don't get any other detail about what that flogging is. In fact, we have to look at extra biblical accounts to understand what happens. That crucifixion and cross, it was almost a curse word to the Romans. But we know what Roman soldiers did. We know they had whips. We know they that, that embedded lead and bone and stuff to cut through flesh. And they knew how to do this perfectly. It was inhuman. It was unbearable. And some people that went through flogging... They didn't even make it to the cross. And so we have to get that from other accounts from history. And so we read Isaiah's words and can we imagine that his appearance was disfigured? That it was marred beyond human reason? Of course we can. If you go to verse 2 of chapter 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. We know Jesus' beginnings, they were humble, weren't they? Born in a stable. Grew up in a despised, really, town, Nazareth. We know about His life, that He, he learned carpentry from his, his, his dad, His father. And in these words... If you look at the Hebrew, well, if I looked at the Hebrew, but in this word for beauty, you see that in that verse? There's no beauty or majesty. That beauty is the same word that is used about King David, and it means fine-looking. King David was fine-looking. Jesus? No. There's nothing in it. Is, and I don't know if you ever thought about this, but you ever thought Jesus could be this, like, 5'4 guy, you know, stout, stocky, with crooked teeth? I mean... The Bible says there's no beauty. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, he wasn't tall, dark, and handsome, the Bible says. But yet he preached with power and authority. And the people were attracted to him, not because of his beauty, but because of his words. Because of his love and compassion. Because his words were powerful. Verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we consider him stricken by God. Smitten by him. And afflicted. Does that take you back to the song we just sang? As you look at those words from Isaiah, you can also peek on the screen here because this is how they play out exactly from Matthew's Gospel. It says this, Then the governor's soldiers, that's Pilate, the governor's soldiers took Jesus and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Where he said, I am the son of God. Isaiah 53. Despised? Rejected? Man of sorrows? Suffering? Affliction? All of that, yes. And I think about this. When people saw Jesus on the cross, they thought he was dying for his own sins. So he's afflicted. He's suffering. But we know better because look at verse 5 from Isaiah. Remembering now that this was spoken 700 years ahead of time. Isaiah writes, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. I mean, do you see how God turns this whole horrible crucifixion scene at this moment in time, two thousand years ago, for something good for us? I think of that popular Christian song, "My Victory." It says these lines: "A cross meant to kill is my victory." That Hebrew word for heal—by His wounds we are healed. It's kind of equivalent to the word forgiveness. Why did Jesus die? So that we could have forgiveness. Why was Jesus punished? So that we might have peace with a holy and righteous God. Our sins deserved God's wrath. Right? Our sins deserved God's wrath, but yet here it was placed on Jesus. By his wounds we are healed. Have you ever thought about this, that that, that Jesus at this moment... And time is carrying the sins of the whole world. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, it's hard for me to watch the news. It's hard for me to, to turn on the radio, K, uh, not KFU, not, AM 950, what is that? You know, I, ri- I ride down the street and then I hear something about how some woman or some man abuses a kid, leaves him in a car, does whatever, and I think of all the sins, Right? all the school shootings, all the horror, just just in 2018 alone. But yet, in the history of time, you multiply all those sins, and then I think of my own sins, about all the things I've done and the things I've left undone. And Jesus is carrying this immeasurable amount of sin on the cross for us. And so can you imagine that he's thinking through all those things, and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane these words from Mark and from Luke's Gospel, Mark 14 34, do you remember what he says? Jesus said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In Luke's gospel, it says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He knew what he had to do. He knew he had to go to the cross. No one else in the world would be sufficient. No death would be able to settle God's wrath for sin. Only his one and only perfect son. So Isaiah prophesies again in verse 6. Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Each of us. That's every man, every woman, every child on this earth. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of all of us. And I wonder, as Isaiah writes this thing, does he understand clearly what he's writing? I mean, if you look back on Jesus' life and death, we can see how perfectly Isaiah's words are fulfilled. But did Isaiah understand that? I I don't think so. All our sins placed on Jesus. Did you get that? All our sins, past, present, and future all placed on Jesus you know um, as the Jewish people celebrated have you heard of this this day called the day of atonement this great the, the high priest that's pointed out for that year the high priest takes this live goat and he places his hands on this live goat and he confesses the sin of all the people of God's chosen people so all that sin then is carried on that goat and then that goat is like cast away it's carried off You can read about it in Leviticus 16. And in the same way, Jesus carries all our sin. And it's cast away, carried away on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. His mouth. Jesus goes silently, he goes quietly, but he goes intentionally. He wasn't forced. The three gospels of Matthew and John and Luke all play it out exactly. We have this account from Matthew chapter 26. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared... This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus did what? Remain silent. In John chapter 19 verses 9 and 10, Pilate asked Jesus, Where do you come from? But Jesus said, Gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus says you don't have the power, Pilate. He doesn't have to say anything, right? Luke chapter 23, verses 8 and 9, we read about how this other ruler, a ruler who wanted to see Jesus, King Herod. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. I would say wanting to kill him, right? From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus didn't have to justify himself. He didn't have to speak about it. He knew the hour had come. And he was in control. He was doing this. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. you remember reading the affirmation from First Peter? It says exactly these words. No deceit when it was in his mouth, but there was oppression, there was judgment. That describes the crucifixion, doesn't it? He's cut off from the land of the living, assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich. Isaiah's prophesying this Messiah, this Savior of the world, is not going to live long on this earth. He's not going to live a life of glory and power like other kings. That he's going to be innocent, but he's going to be declared guilty, guilty. And this death penalty is going to be on him. It's so specific. And I'm amazed at this when I read it, and it plays out perfectly. I mean, if you see these verses, he's assigned a grave with the death, with with the wicked, and with the rich. It sounds kind of contradictory, doesn't it? Yes, with the wicked, because he's crucified as a criminal. And so criminals didn't have proper burials. They're just kind of tossed aside, and that's it. But yet he's a He's assigned a grave with the rich. Isaiah spoke these words 700 years ago, but yet they're detailed perfectly and they come to fruition. Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60. He's buried, but he's buried properly. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Isn't that amazing? Last few verses of Isaiah from from verses 10 to 12 say these words, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. You see, just think about this for a moment, okay? Isaiah, 700 years before, he's writing about the crucifixion, but he gives us a hint of the resurrection. What's the hint? That he makes his life a guilt offering, but he's going to see his offspring. How's that going to happen? Who, who are Jesus' offspring? He wasn't married, right? Right? It's us. Anyone who believes in him after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. There's the resurrection, folks. He'll see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There's so much in these verses. There's so much. But can you imagine it was the Lord's will to crush him? Think about this. This is the goal of Jesus' life. The goal of Jesus' life is that we would be made right with God. That he had to do this for me. If I was the only one in this world... He'd still have to do this Because I'm a sinner But yet because he died on the cross I have peace with God Our sins They cause God to have to do this He had to rescue us Because sin You've heard this before right Sin causes separation That's what it does It causes us to be separated from a holy God But then the blood of Jesus is poured out and the Bible says he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgression, transgressors. That's what a great high priest does. That's what a priest does. He intercedes for his people. That's who Jesus is. So on this Good Friday, it's a chance once again to remember, to commemorate a death. But more so to remember his life as well. And as we understand that more and more, I pray as you live out your Christian life, that you and I both, from year to year, every time we celebrate, every time we remember, we can understand the price that he paid. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. But in faith, we respond. And we understand that my sin, your sin, they're on the cross. And as our faith matures when we understand that, we grow to understand and appreciate His grace and His love for us. How wide, how deep the love of God has for us. Amen? It's a good Friday. It's a day to celebrate. And it blows my mind that Isaiah, 700 years before, writes this with such clarity and it's all laid out. All the prophecies in the Scriptures, all the Gospels, you see it clearly. You know, we began... I began uh, talking about Billy Graham, his death. If you don't know this, he's a man who preached to 215 million people in over 185 countries. 185 countries. His impact on this country and this world is undeniable, isn't it? Yet I'm sure his life and death, it's gonna be, they're going to be remembered, but Reverend Graham would most likely say, that his life and death pales in comparison to Jesus. Amen? How many people have been reached by the sweet words of this Bible? By Jesus himself? Two billion people right now. We're the number one religion in the world, folks. We are. Two billion Christians. And at this time, can you imagine throughout the world how many people are celebrating this Good Friday? We're off work. You're here. Right? And Martin Luther, the man who started the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, he understands the same thing. Yes, did he impact all kinds of people? Absolutely. But in his life, he would say, we're all just beggars compared to what Jesus has done. And so we remember his death, and we remember his resurrection, not just on a yearly basis, but on a daily one. It is a good Friday. I pray that you celebrate that today and we understand it more and more. Amen.